You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, a return guest, Jim Rose. Hey, how's everyone doing? Doing good, Jim. Nice to see you here. No, likewise. Heck, be back. heck yeah, we are excited. We're recording this the day before your show here in Los Angeles, which been since the hospital fest since you've been out here, if I'm not mistaken? That was the last time. Incidentally, I think the very best Surya performance ever in the career of the project was at that Zebulon show. That wow. was a that great was a good show. Fantastic. I think a lot of us were transfixed mm-hmm. that night in yes. the audience for a few, a few good performances there. So, yeah. but yeah, that was yeah. great. You know, we've gotten a chance to see Lasuria a bunch between the three of us for sure. Obviously, Tara and I got to see you for two weeks straight. That's right. Yeah. Summer always summer, summer tour. Always <laughs> summer tour was every time. Absolutely, definitely, definitely one of our favorite tours, if not our favorite tour. We for had sure. a great for time. Sure. And I can't, I can't remember what was the what record had just come out around then was that the industrial uh, industrial uh, industrialo illuminato wait I'm industriale illuminato oh, let me say thank it right you. that was wonderful that was about to come out okay I think uh, we booked the tour for that record but I think there was delays okay maybe so yeah. I think after the tour um, that's when it came out but we also had a uh, immemorial that was the, on yes, there as yes, well too yes immemorial but, which is that's a fantastic one. And that one, we were actually just listening to that the other mm-hmm. night. It seems, you know, Lasuria has multiple facets to what you do. And, and Immemorial is overridingly, uh, you know, more direct, ambient, less rhythmic stuff on that one. How do you approach a recording what is in your head as far as there's going to be rhythmic stuff, there's going to be ambient stuff. I'm not going to have any rhythmic stuff. Do you have, do you set rules for yourself when you do a, rec- a Lasuria recording? It's strictly instinct. Um, simple as that. There's, I, I don't really give that much thought on how to approach this with the new material that I'm working on now. I'm actually working on two albums simultaneously. One is going to be the rhythmic stuff and whatever is too drony, too atmospheric or the industrial stuff is going to be a drone record. So that's cool. kind of how this this particular time is kind of how I'm differentiating between the two. But the drone thing, is, I'm kind of shaping it to be a follow-up to Immemorial. Yeah. So, yeah, so because I think what next year is going to be 10 years since that came out. So this would be the, I guess, the good time to have a follow-up for, for Immemorial. Same idea, same, you know, elongated songs, 20-minute songs, drone pieces, and super atmospheric. Was it around like 2011 or so, 2012, when you sort of moved from the primary drone stuff into more rhythmic work? Like American Babylon seems like the the big example of that work, the kind of shift in your work there where the earlier tapes were more in the extended drone piece way. Yeah. The thing is with those tapes, I felt that I kind of did as much that I possibly could with the drone stuff. So that's why I started to move more sound collage and then eventually gained the confidence to start incorporating the beats for the industrial stuff for American Babylon and then eventually industrial Illuminato. So it was, it was a progress. It was a progress thing for sure. The early tapes were, you were utilizing a lot and still to this day, utilize a lot of non instruments. Mm -hmm. Dry ice was always the one that stuck out to me when I first discovered the project. 
what how did that start as far as you approaching the project using these non-instruments as sources? I think it just felt exciting to use things that weren't synthesizers or traditional instruments. And it was actually uh, it was actually a mutual friend of ours, Arzat Skia, that actually told me about the dry ice thing in the first place oh, way, yeah. way back when. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember who he was referencing, but he was like, this artist is using dry ice. You know, why don't you just try that out? And so it was actually easy to do that in a live setting as opposed to studio where I was using all these other things where it was going to be impossible to bring it out live. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where that started from with, with the dry ice. But um, yeah, it was more, more interesting, more fun to get sounds that way. Just experiments with, with just different sources, I suppose. That's awesome. And when did Lasuria start? What is the, the first couple of tapes in the, and what year were those? About 2007. Okay. That started at the time I was about to be leaving a metal band that I was playing in. I was just becoming more and more frustrated with the, with the whole band dynamic, the personalities just wasn't into it anymore. This is around the time of the hospital shop first opening up. So I was working with a record label at the time doing distro and selling CDs to all of the Surrounding shops, Bleaker Bobs, Generations, Metal Kingdom, and then eventually it would have been Hospital. So what was great with the Hospital shop is that um, before that, there was nothing really selling noise at all. And I was as passionate with the metal stuff as I was with with noise. Bleaker Bobs was selling noise, but at that point, Mark Saltroff and... and um, John Slogan, they weren't working there anymore. So you had leftovers of their stuff that would be in the used rack. Occasionally you would see cold meat stuff that that the buyer would buy because maybe it was part of the metal distribution or whatever. But so Tom opens up hospital. It was like a, a complete game changer because now you kind of just see that you can work outside of this band dynamic. I mean, I remember you would go into the shop, people are browsing for records, and meanwhile, Dominic is laying down vocals behind the counter, like not a care in the world, just ignoring <laughs> the people just going through records. I'm like, this this is incredible. It's like this, you know, there's no excuse not to create anymore. You can do things on your own. And that started to get the gears turning for Lasuria. I didn't approach it with any sets game plan like i wasn't gonna be all right it's gonna be noise or something like that whatever comes naturally whatever comes instinctually that's how i was going to do it and it just turned out that um it started to go more on the atmospheric side so references would have been coil meritree's mayan album omay especially omay especially live was actually a big inspiration too and uh postscriptum those four Yen Pox, those are the five I would actually, wow. I would uh, credit, uh, and of course, you know, the Slaughter and the sure, but Old Europa, but that's like, you know, that's the same as saying, okay, a, a, a Stoner Doom band's influenced by Black Sabbath. Big surprise, you know, you're into, you're into Cold Meat. Right, you know, but so, those, yeah, 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 exactly. But those are the, the, some of the specific Those were the specific ones, exactly. That, that you got into. That and, absolutely and you, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and you are playing with Postscriptum coming up here pretty in soon, a, right? In about a month, yeah. yeah. His 25th anniversary show. So so that's that's a big deal. One of the very first uh, ambient things I bought from Malignant was actually was Postscriptum on the Sea Green series. So it's oh. kind of like a 
it's kind of like a historic moment for me personally. So I'm definitely still looking for it. Were you ordering from Malignant a lot back then too? Almost exclusively. Yeah, yeah. Almost exclusively. He was, that was like the, I mean, the relapse wasn't selling the noise so much anymore. So I think if memory serves, he was like the only one who could really get it, get this stuff domestically. Yeah, it was such a big deal. I know for me being able to get that stuff. And I was talking about this the other day. The catalog he would send out and later the website would have his reviews. Like every release didn't have a press release, a label blurb. It had Jason listened to the record (laughs) and told you what he thought about the record. And I always thought that was just one of the coolest things it was different than getting a triple r catalog where you just go on name and price and yeah, yeah. label or whatever country and you had these really tangible things and it would reference other projects you like or had heard or it would even reference another thing that you could then flip to in the catalog and see what he said about that one and then you're like oh well, i'm gonna buy like these five things i my old malignant catalogs have highlighter in them from all the things i wanted to buy most of which i did <laughs> That's so awesome. And yeah, even just having the personal write-up. I, I, I mean, maybe there's people who still do that. I'm if there are, I'm unaware, but what a cool That's way, so what much a cool, work. It is I, I can't mean, imagine I think, somebody doing that. No, I feel back then maybe it was a little more manageable or something. Yeah. Yeah. But you know it, who else used to do that was Hanson, the Hanson catalog. Dillaway would write all the descriptions, oh, yeah. and that was part of the charm of it yeah. too, right? Is yeah. just seeing seeing that and being like, Yeah, I could buy this weird dub reggae record Dillaway's got and then you read the description you're like oh that sounds totally cool I didn't know I needed this right so that kind of thing curation is so important yeah I think it helped turn a lot of people onto different things and maybe encourages more than just checking out because it's on this label or whatever yeah, so yeah definitely mm-hmm. and-, and walking into the hospital store the first time all, when it was downstairs oh yeah I mean it was like you were entering some portal and you know and it and automatically elevated whatever you found yes like what mm-hmm. is this relic what is this thing oh my god you know it just it felt it was truly underground I it think it's some of the th- I think I think it's some of the things that I saw there that I didn't grab and you're just like know, you know you, you're myself. just like kicking your, just like any of us is any of the catalogs and you go look back and like dude I I passed up on that tape or whatever. And we would you know, think like, mm-hmm. oh, we'll be right back. Well, yeah, we'll be back. I want you to know? save some dough for the merch table. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, yeah, yeah. don't, don't yeah. save. Just Never. spend all your money. Tara, spend all your money. Spend it on the at the store and spend it at the merch table. I, just you need to go to zero. I say everyone listens to Tara. Spend all your money on noise. Well, you know, we we obviously we we had you on on the one of the earliest episodes when we, we as noise extra. So we may may have gone over some of this stuff then, but you know it's it's been long enough. What was the absolute first stuff for you? Because your metal was you came from metal, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. And it, was it called Meat Industry that that you started getting into the more abstract, atmospheric, ambient, and eventually noise and industrial stuff? Correct. Because a lot of the black metal guys, they started to have their own side projects, not only on cold meat, but Master's Hammer, for example, they made a switch from black metal to just this completely bizarre, like you couldn't even classify it. It was part circus music, part experimental. And then you had Beharit, who, same thing. They wound Mm -hmm. up making a switch from black metal to... It's like strange ritualistic electronica to like where electric doom synthesis would be like more or less like black techno or something like right. that. Mm-hmm. And then of course, uh, dark throne had Neptune towers. Yeah. And so, so yeah, it was, that was kind of the entryway into the experimental side of things. And, um, 
it was actually really inspiring at that point too because i was playing in thrash metal bands before that like in the early 90s learned about black metal got really obsessed with it but where i was from on long island there really wasn't that much of an audience for it at all it was actually really shunned uh the death metal crowd was not into it so i was really one of very few people that was into the black metal thing so for a creative for creative output these experimental bands uh side projects rather they were pretty inspiring and i actually started doing my own stuff around that time too early stuff in late 97 98 before i started playing keyboards and black metal bands and oh, stuff really? like that yeah mm. yeah 97 there was a i had a project called dead boys choir where basically it was simply it was like a hundred dollar casio with an eighth inch output cord going into a sound blaster card and as simple as that uh, so it's completely mm. crude, you know, but it was spread among friends, 30 copies. Um, some of them actually wound up going out into the metal undergrounds of the tape traders I was doing with. Of course, it went over all of their people's heads because it just, you know, wasn't metal. One copy actually wound up going to a magazine out in Australia called Heresy Magazine. And the thing, what was important about this particular magazine, this was an underground magazine that covered all of the really obscure black metal stuff, but also would do cold meat, old Europa. So it was, that was like the information. That was how I was getting information about all this stuff too. Not only was it underground spirit, but it was also pro printed too. So, which which was crazy. Like the, Mm -hmm. the, the amount of money this guy must've spent to have this taken care of was just like, I, I could just imagine. But the editor, he uh, he and I used to go back and forth, and that's how you know I would kind of stay in touch with just the whole, I guess, the experimental side of of the of that metal stuff. I was curious is if you recall the the feeling or the sentiment around when Beharit went more electronic, or with something like Neptune's Towers, was was there I like, at the time was there backlash to to those projects or were people more accepting of it i mean now obviously everyone is so excited for the beharit electronic set in japan these records are amazing but back then what was the sentiment do you recall just being being in it you know when that was happening it was divided um i think the real the real hardcore metal guys of course were put off by it entirely but the real fanatical black metal people i remember they were more interested than anything because they were just so hungry for black metal that they wanted to know where they were coming up with these ideas with these sounds with so it was definitely divided but the people that were into it they were really they really liked the change of pace i guess right right the, the experimentation of it but that also just kind of caused uh, it caused the the half of us that were into it to just dig deeper. Like, okay, why does Neptune's Tower sound like this? You know, we didn't know Klaus Schultz, so okay, let's let's find out more records from that mm. Tangerine Dream. You know, so it kind of caused us to to get into this more experimental into this field. It's great to see how you know just a few artists can inspire so many people to just be emboldened to defy their genre or to not feel like you have to do one thing. Like you can experiment with many things mm-hmm. and still have, have a love for where you started. It doesn't mean that you love metal less. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It just means that you have 
interests in addition to. Yeah, and just able to expand that world. And it can appreciate mm-hmm. in a different way. Exactly. And it becomes more expansive and it and includes more and more people and different types of thoughts. It's awesome. Yeah. It just makes it more interesting. Just even as an artist too, just just kind of drawing in these different different influences it just really just helps the craft. Mm-hmm. And so in the nineties, you're, you're tape trading a lot. You're starting to discover cold meat malignant. Were you going to shows around this time or were you a little bit cut off from, from that as far as noise and, uh, you know, experimental shows? Pretty cut off because there was, this was pre-internet. So there was no way to get the word out. So I had no idea what was happening. The very first show I wound up going to was God blessed America. Oh wow! So that, oh, yeah. that was um, <laughs> that changed everything. That changed everything. I remember the very first set was Anna's Zafalia. The wow. ten inch with the tower had just come out. They opened up with the A side of that track, which to this day my favorite Anna's Zafalia oh, track ever. So. That ten inch we just talked about Anna's Zafalia uh, for <laughs> yeah. a seven inch Sunday, yeah. but that uh, we were talking about how great instrumentalities is, and that ten inch is one of my absolute favorite things of theirs. It's so. For sure strangely psychedelic in a way that some of their stuff isn't that's it just has this melting quality that seeps into every part of your consciousness when you're listening to it mm-hmm. i love i love that 10 inch yeah no that's I, I agree it's it's one of my favorites to this day for sure i mean that that a side i just never tire of i'm trying to remember who else was on that was, yeah, was did geo play or no geo did play yeah geo did yeah, play. yeah um the one and only time i saw them was, uh, and Dirk Dirk, Lutars, right? Dirk Lutars played at five in the morning. Oh, <laughs> yes. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, yes. Mm. I, you know what? I was either having this conversation with you or with someone who you were with, a mutual friend of ours, mm-hmm. who was saying that they saw, oh, you, you now I'm remembering this because it was when, mm. when Alvin passed and I was asking, you know, people if they'd ever seen Dirk Lutars and they were saying that. It was five in the morning, yeah. and, and so uh, it must have. I, I assume it's who you went with, mm-hmm. our mutual buddy. Uh, and yeah, he said it was like in, in a way, like insanely fitting to see them. That like just this like you're you like you're just this time out of time band. Adds that, another layer of confusion. At that point, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did, did, did did Deutsche Nepal play? Oh yes, he yes he did. He was <laughs> so, <laughs> so he played on day three, day one and two. He was just he was just being Lena. So by the time it came time for him to play, I think he played about ten minutes and had to walk off because he was smoking so much cigarettes and just completely drunk. His his voice was completely shot. He just oh. he couldn't even do vocals <laughs> from so. hanging out all weekend. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think what he did two songs off uh, Silent Siege, and I think that was it. He just he just wanted to. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I have to I have to cut yeah. this set short. Yeah, blew Condom, your voice out. Condom played that first Condom played, too, yes. and wow. did material from the War Against Society yes. set, which wow. is also Sorry. some of my favorite of his. Absolutely. So yeah, so that being your first big show, I mean, come on, that must have just been yeah. That kind of yep. sets the bar. I don't know That's, how you went to yeah. any other shows. I mean, I mean, let alone Operation Clean Sweep, blowing out the power. Um, basically, <laughs> halfway through the set, all the lights in the venue completely went out, but they were still able to play. So explain <laughs> that one. I don't know, but it was it was pitch in black. In a pitch black venue. Pitch, pitch black. That yeah. is wild. 
Wow. That's insane. So I, I, I do remember that. Did anybody and, leave or did everybody just stay? No, no, everyone stuck around. Yeah, fine. Everyone stuck around. <laughs> everyone that was there wanted to be there. They knew why they, why they were there. And, <sighs> yeah. and the thing is, that venue was double booked that entire weekend, like, I think, except for the Sunday. So God Bless America didn't start until after midnight. So wow, that's why they played where, where a was that? That's why. that was at North Six. North Six, okay, yeah. great. We've all been, yeah, yeah. Six. yeah. wow. So, yeah, that must have just been a crazy experience. I forgot about double booked venues, oh, dude. Lord. Yeah, I don't miss that. I've kicked myself for over 20 years for not going to that. Mm-hmm. As po- podcast listeners probably know, I went to Octog America like wow, a, a year or two before, yeah. which was really fantastic. But why I didn't go to God Blast America is is completely beyond me. Like, it's a thing I would have gone to, I wanted to to go to i don't know why i didn't make it happen well there's that time too especially you'd been to octane america so there maybe was also that feeling of like oh this is gonna happen multiple times yeah yeah like it, it, yeah, yeah we'll catch the next one and, right dude. it's the same thing yeah. when coil played uh in 99 right the convergence festival it's like oh they're playing shows now they'll they'll tour yeah, that. yeah, yeah they'll like, definitely come yeah, near right. me okay yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so now the, as tara has taught us today Spend all your money Spend all and of it. go not? to the shows because they may never happen That's again. why we'll see you all, every single Noise Extra listener in Japan next year. That exactly. is right. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that is the the plan. So God uh, Bless America, absolutely legendary show. Something we've talked about with so many people who have been there or the, or the people who regretted not going just because of that lineup. And you're but you're still you're still in metal bands at this point right you haven't right. like you said you, you sort of started things here and there but your focus is still metal yeah because okay, that just because that's what you knew the most or you or at least you knew you could do that the most the band that i was playing in at the time we were touring a lot so basically all of my attention was required just to be on that i was running a label at the time too so i was like basically all of my attention was focused really on on the metal side of things. I mean, still equally passionate about the noise and the thing, but unfortunately, my focus had to be on on that. And if, if I'm not mistaken, didn't we meet? Were you weren't you doing merch in Boston? At we were playing a show next door with Purient, mm-hmm. and we came in and we wanted to buy a bunch of CDs for the, the van and right. you were oh my god uh behind the merch table and you were you we were so psyched that the dude doing merch for that show knew us and knew about that show because you had not actually met Dom at that point, right? No, that was the first time meeting Dom. Like, like at all. Wait, at yes, all. So we have all, all met at a merch table. I just want to establish <laughs> yeah, yeah, that now. Gray. Listen, we met Gray. I met Gray. I was doing merch and Gray was doing We're, merch at the table next to me. How, how you met people? Jim buying people. That's we how you so, meet people. We were so, it was, I think it was the first, it was the first show of the tour that Did we I had picked up Dom. We had done a few yeah. shows before and then we picked up Dom in, in Boston and I can't remember what band. What was it? What band were, was even playing that night that that you that you were doing the merch for? No. So basically, I was touring with the band I was playing in at the time. Dimension on. We were touring with Sabat and the Chasm. We were playing the upstairs of the Middle East. The, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we we it was like before the show. Somehow we were able to cruise in, and we went to the merch table, and. We, you know, I and we remember we bought a bunch of CDs and like the fact that you knew 
uh, you knew that we were playing and like, oh, dude, oh, and we were oh like, my God. the guy who we just bought like How all these I know this story? This is from. insane. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was 2005. Oh my God. Yeah. So, so it was only you were the guy that we that knew who we were yeah. that we bought CDs from in 2005. Yeah. But then fast forward to 2007 is when you end up meeting Dom for the first time? No, it was actually that very night. Uh, that, oh, so you end up yeah. kind of talking and connecting yeah. that right. night. So okay. what happened was, so after we were done sound checking, uh, the drummer of, of the band uh, of Dimension On was also into noise like myself too. So oh, cool. he's just walking around town and he's the one who found the show. Oh, awesome. And then he's like, uh, by the way, do you realize right next door is Wolf Eyes, Perient, and I think FFH was on that? Or I don't remember I, who I, else played, there was, it was definitely Wolf Eyes. There was a third yeah. one. There was a third one. Work. And then we're like, what? Like really? Like so at that point both both me and the drummer were like, we don't even want to play our show. We just want we just want to go there. Like we we were like we were like checked out at that point. We're like ready, like just let's just get this over with so we could just go next door and just hang out there. And uh, and that's where I wound up meeting Dom for the first Amazing. time. Amazing. We got banned from the venue. Uh TC TT the Bears. Uh we got banned from the venue that night. Oh nice. So what did you do? I mean, there was, it really. was Wolf Eyes Parade in 2005. Okay. <laughs> like, like I, said, I don't know. I don't remember specifics. Yelled a lot, <laughs> smashed up. It got crazy. Yeah, I'm I, sure I, got I crazy. remember that show got crazy. Yeah. I think it, it was would. one of the Wolf Someone Eyes got arrested. Oh, that I not, 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 not in our crew, but some, like, someone got arrested that night, like in the audience. Like, for like, oh. I can't remember for what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was crazy. I think it was like one of the, the Wolf Eyes guys' birthday on stage too. It might have I, I been. think I remember something like that. As it well. might have been. Yeah, oh, it's, extra it, hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay. I just remember being banned from the venue, and I remember buying CDs uh, <laughs> from Who Will That You Become wasn't a the Great first Friend, and wasn't the last venue to be banned. Yeah, from. exactly. That's exactly. How it happens. Well, so you guys it. did connect that night. We did connect, and then um, again, I was working for a record label at the time, and me and Tom exchanged info. Fast forward a few months later, I get an email from him saying that he's about to open up a, a shop that's specializing in noise and black metal in Manhattan. Awesome. And he's like, would, yeah, you you be, would you be able to help stock some of the metal end of things for the shop? Because I think the grand opening was one of the No Fun Fests. Yeah, it was. Oh, it was yeah. a No Fun that following year. And I mean, mm-hmm. when we were on that tour is when he was plotting the store. Mm-hmm. And I remember when it did happen, I think it happened faster than anyone expected. It was, it was like, this yeah. is here, this is available, we're doing it. And I believe it was the, no, the following No Fun, if I'm not and mistaken. And so many people year-wise. talk about doing something like that, and you hear your friends talk about, like, oh, I'm going to open this thing, and then it doesn't, but that happened, like, it was yeah. out, of, out of nowhere. I think it was just yeah. within a couple of months. He, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was wild. I think he'd, he'd wanted to do that even before leaving Providence. Oh, so, absolutely. I mean, that was a thing that, 100%. that we had talked about way back then. found the spot, yeah. yeah. That first spot was insane. Yeah. I, I climbing that through the hole in the floor down yeah. that ladder into a record store smaller than your living room. Yeah, that was yeah. so poetic. I uh, loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and and then add like you know the racks of vinyl, yeah. tape, CD everywhere, making it even more cramped. You could what was the limit? You could fit four people in there at once. I think comfortably. Yeah, comfortably. I remember waiting outside for my turn to go in. He's like standing out front, like, oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So you, but again, it was part of that. Especially back then, we were all just like, it was just so. We were just do. We were forcing things to happen. Oh, it was was special, and the people you you met there, and later when the shop expanded, like it was 
a place. I, I imagine having it nearby because when I would be in from out of town, I'm it going. A, I'm going to the hospital yeah, store. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to yeah. spend like four hours hanging out. Dom's going to play some Ashpool riffs and yeah. like put on some cool noise records or whatever. You know, I'm going to find some awesome tapes. Like it was a place you would go to, not just shop for stuff, but hang out. There's community kind yeah. of around yeah. it because people knew. There's there's no one outside hanging out at this store. It's only people that are here for noise. Yeah. And that's different than a lot of other record stores. You're not going to go to Amoeba necessarily, but you might bump into a friend or someone in the experimental section, but it's different when you're going to a dedicated place for these kinds of music. Well, and especially back then uh, w- with the, with the no funds and the, everyone traveling to them, it was, you go to triple R on the way there. And then when you're there, you go to hospital. It was, it became this, mm-hmm. the round, you know, like, yeah. you know, you, and, and just that, be you know we always talk about the importance of being in person you know talking in person meeting people in person just not you not even playing just just the actual conversations that you have and how important that is and certainly for various reasons but especially just the way the world continues to get smaller get 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 less about that and we just retreat into our phones you miss that meeting in person and you know the the absolute reality of getting older and just that <laughs> you, that that drive of like that that crazy yeah. drive of youth that and trying to expand the world when you're young and then trying to pull it back when yeah, you're older yeah, just yeah, like ah, yeah. too big let's pull that in but well. <laughs> it's still so important and there are these pockets of these important meetings and and meetups and times when we're all in person obviously japan's going to be the big next one it, you know i i imagine for you just being around the store for all those years that it was open, always you know, just meeting the people who were coming in, just being in there and, oh, this band on tour is in and, and you end up meeting them and talking. That must have just been a really important time for you just in general. It was, it was huge because for once I felt I saw what a healthy scene looked like because just at least locally from where I was from, just so much bickering in, in the metal world. The hospital world wasn't like that at all because it was when um, I started Lusuria when I actually made it a public project when I finally had the courage like okay here's a tape with you know everyone was super supportive everyone was always there was some sort of words of wisdom there was some some sort of encouragement and and you know of course Dominic but then you had Chris Lapke studio downstairs mm-hmm. the KP guys behind the counter you know Rich FFH would come in it was like. It was also an exchange of ideas, which was huge. This was this was like what a scene should be, you know. And yes. everything I was always told what a scene was was supposed to be. So it was huge. It was a very very big big thing. Again, Lasuria could not have existed without this. Without how, the hospital shop. How soon into making Lasuria a public thing did you start playing live? Because I. I remember seeing you play at a Burning Flesh Festival. I mm-hmm. want to say Red Light District was that two thousand eight. The hospital shop was still open, right? Right. When that happened, but yeah. I don't remember the exact year. So how how soon? You're talking starting the project in 2007. Was 2007? It- I kept it under wraps for about a year until I just felt it was presentable. Because I mean, I was going to start a brand new project and think I had like the balls to be like, all right, here's some half baked idea. Check check out this project. Like, no, it had to be at least somewhat fleshed out. So that was about a year before I actually showed anybody anything. Uh, so I'm trying to think when the first tape came out. That would have been 2008, maybe. Okay. 
the Festival. That must have been like the fourth or fifth show for Lasuria. Okay, so you played a few Lasuria. times in in that. Yeah, those yeah. months. Yeah, there was two two shows, which was down the street from the hospital shop at this. Uh, I can't remember what it was exactly. Chinese restaurant or something in the basement of it, and that's where the first two came. First two shows were performed. I was on a trip overseas in Paris. That was the third one. And then I think after that would have been the Flushable. Okay. Wow. And you were doing dry ice then too, yeah? Or was that different? Not for the early ones. The dry ice came, I think. Honestly, I think the Fleshable might have been the first time doing it. Oh, okay. you had a yeah. solid dry ice guy. Yeah, That's well, easy to get n- next to uh, next to uh, my work. There's actually an ice cream place, so oh, became very friendly. There you go. Very, very friendly <laughs> you grab the pint, so. grab some dry ice, exactly. seal it up. Exactly. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Were you always intending to play live? Because I think of you as you you play live, you tour, you'll go over to Europe and play shows. W- I feel like you, the live setting is something that you do embrace. Was it always the intention or is it you just fell into playing live? Completely fell into it. I had no intentions on playing live at first at all. And it was actually just, it was actually a friend of ours that was looking shows at the time. And she was like, oh, why don't you just try doing Lissuri live? And I was like, nah, I'm not so sure it's a good idea. Eventually, eventually, you know, he won me over and I wound up doing it. And that kind of, that's what started it. You know. Do you still enjoy playing live? I mean, you're here because you're playing a show tomorrow. What is your relationship with playing live in 2023? Better than it had, than it was. I always had like kind of like a love-hate relationship with it. Because uh, it was always like equipment failures and stuff like that. So I always had a hard time getting over stuff like that. But I think recent years, it's, it's a better relationship. I mean, Lissoria always was a studio project, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way to experience the project is at home, headphones, nice speakers, big black stereo. Yeah, live is more like an afterthought, really. But yeah, it's definitely a studio project, first and foremost. How much of your studio rig becomes part of your live setup is it do you have separate sort of things that you do live do you have to tear apart your studio and rebuild it when you get back from playing shows it's two separate things because a lot of the gear that i'm using is just either too heavy or just too expensive to to bring live like for example during the scarlet locust years i was using uh and i still am once in a while using a roland phantom which is this huge 88 key keyboard it's just mess this thing weighs more than i do so there's no way i'm gonna be <laughs> so it got weighted I mean, keys too it, yeah it does it wow. does All right. so, yeah. <laughs> so and basically i rigged this thing up to do sampling and that, that's how i was able to pull off that record and then i was using that for standstill as well for a little bit and uh poison butterfly as well now i'm using a whole different rig. but yeah basically i can't bring that stuff live so it's gonna be like it's gonna be the rolling 404 um I mean, now I'm using a laptop, but back then it was the 404. What else was there? A bunch of pedals. I think of a bunch of pedals. Like, if yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think yeah. back to, like, the first time yeah. I saw you play. And your setup back then was enormous. I remember very, very many yeah. pedals. But now you're you're very much pared down. It's compact, yeah. Yeah. It's just, I'm lazy in my old age. I don't know. Well, but <laughs> like, I think no, it's also think just it's easier yeah. for it, traveling. Oh, totally, what, yeah. what were the problems that you found you were running into? You said you'd have equipment problems and stuff. What were those problems and how did you, dis- how did you, you know, work around those or decide like, all right, I need to cut some of this out. Yeah. And I yeah. also want to say, I've never seen you play a bad show. Oh, so, that's, that's for sure. It's true. <laughs> I haven't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really haven't. 
Yeah. Um, you know what it is? It's also like, okay, when, when you have so many pedals, it's, it's like, okay, maybe there's a loose connection somewhere and then just trying to, trying to find that. Stuff like that, simple stuff like that. Nothing really like that major. Nothing where like a show had to stop or anything like that. There was always a way around it. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe use a different channel or ways around it. But yeah, it's kind of... There's still frustrations it. and they take you exactly. out of the headset you have to get in to perform exactly. and play a good show. I know it's just, yeah. even just a little thing. Even sound checking and hearing like a scratchy pot on the mixer is going to throw off my game for the rest of the night because now I'm worried about that thing. I can't focus on all the other things I want to focus on. I'm worried about this one thing interrupting it, which, you know, half the audience isn't even going to notice if it does, but it's but still, you do. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's still That's taking, what it is. It messes with your headspace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, yeah, it, it just, stripping down and making your set as simple as possible, I think is really the way to go, especially traveling. Like, yeah, Mm. you, you flew out here. You obviously can't bring your, the biggest stuff, you know, just, just the reality of that. And you also, this is a one-off show, you know? So it's like, you want to make sure it's, you're, you're not like giving yourself this crazy task. Exactly. Yeah. Something achievable. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I've learned to do a lot when traveling is try to source gear, borrow gear. So if I'm going somewhere, especially for like one off or just a couple shows, like everybody has an MS20 Mini somewhere. So if that's something I need to use, I can usually get away without flying with it because people have it. But not everybody has an 88 key sampling keyboard well, of like a specific it. thing with, <laughs> you know, like your stuff yeah. loaded into it. So finding the well, workarounds. I need like two and a half octaves and I'm good on a keyboard. I don't need much else. Um, you mentioned standstill. I, I do want to get to that one because it's, it's a massive work. I mean, it's four hours of material. How yeah. did the idea for that come about? How, how does one, approach making a four hour release i mean that's that's a thing that most of us haven't done and it's not all improvisational it's it's, it's all tracks it's a lot of mm-hmm. composed pieces right it's, it's not it's not four hours of of a drone it's right, it's right. Yeah, four exactly. hours of real real research. it feels like a four hour album yeah, yeah is yeah. what it is what that, it is that's how i tried to approach it i was like one thing i was not going to do i was not going to take the easy way out and just make four elongated drone pieces i could have but i was just like no nah, it's gonna it's not gonna be interesting for the listener so that's kind of what i have had in mind first and foremost it's like so yeah try to treat this like a proper album and just try to make this as interesting all the way through as i possibly could I think the origins of that was dominic was having the three set uh three set of the boxes amasaglan dust belt and there was going to be a third one i don't remember who originally was going to be on there but I wound up taking the place of it. Okay. And the sessions were broken up into two times of the year. I wound up doing them one in the springtime in a matter of three weeks, I think. And then later in the fall that year, same thing, I think two weeks and just melted all of it out. That's the stuff that made the album. There's about an hour worth of material that didn't make the cut. And on top of it, I was also working on Poison Butterfly simultaneously. So wow. it was like, yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy action. <laughs> well, I'm just gearing up, obviously, we all listen to Lissaria all the time. But gearing up for this interview, we were going through some of, you know, getting trying to get into the details and the specific, mm-hmm. reading, making sure we got all the notes and, and the recordings. And it does seem that you operate in this way that you will record 
in a, a, a short, a relatively short period of time, but then you go back, like you, you get everything in and then take some time it. to sculpt it. Is that how generally you work? A hundred percent. That's actually one, one thing I also learned from Dom too, just learning to work as quickly as possible. And then just maybe later on, then you just start to tweak stuff like that. But the best stuff comes when you're under pressure and when yeah. you're under time constraints and that's what standstill was, you know, it's like, it wasn't, there was like a hard deadline, but it was also like, see if you can get this done in X amount of time. And the, this is the best strategy. And to this day, I still consider it the best work I've done. So it's, you know, I prefer to work this way. I prefer to work. Okay. Give me a week, two weeks. That's it. I could always go back, do overdubs. I can do edits later, but the, the meat and potatoes of the album will be done within, within a week or two. Infinite time is so difficult to work within. I think we discussed this when we did trash work too, about how, how you really like to work within deadlines and with time constraints because it forces you to focus and, and you have a, a goal in sight to accomplish. So you just need to put the work exactly. towards that. Mm -hmm. The, first album of Lasuria would be American Babylon. Is that, do you consider that the first album? Ghost Entanglement. Oh, duh. I'm an idiot. Ghost Entanglement. That yeah. was my bad. 2011 in that, <gasps> in that great series. I sound too, like an idiot. Uh, Albert's Psychology of Love. The still <laughs> yeah. birth, right? uh, no, you I want to apologize to all the listeners for, for totally blowing that. I love Ghost Entanglement. Yeah. That record is amazing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, total, total poser move on my part. Apologies to everyone <laughs> more to now my, you know, my own, you know, embarrassment. But that was the first record I actually used the dry ice on, uh, the dry ice is prominent on that record. The entire first track, most of the second side. I mean, that was, that was on the records. I never really used it that much except for that, that particular one. Mm -hmm. Scarlet Locust as well too. Like there was uh, the dry ice made a, made another appearance on that one. Have you ever had a dry ice related injury? No, no, thankfully no. Yeah. And which is crazy because I never used gloves either. Like, you know, <laughs> I probably should have, but no, no. Yeah, it hurts. <laughs> no, I moved my hand away just in the, just in the nick of time. But, yeah. And was Ghost Entanglement made knowing it was going to be an LP? Yes. Yeah. yeah I'm trying to remember what the, what the backstory on that one was. But yeah, I, right from the get go, I knew it was going to be an LP and it was written to be exactly like that and the whole narrative from start to finish was really planned out that way usually i don't plan things out usually it's kind of like okay make a track and then just worry about the about the sequences later that was the one exception where from start to finish everything was mapped out i was going to ask how important narrative is to your works because something like American Babylon or Standstill Ghost Entanglement they feel like they have a story to tell Scarlet Locust they're from A to B, you're getting something out of those records. So how does that come about? And how, how do you work with a narrative in while you're recording? Something like Standstill, it was, um, the narrative was just based on feel. So all of the tracks were created after they were finished. That's where I was like, okay, how does this work in the sequence of the, of the album? Does it work better at the ends and the start? So stuff like that, it wasn't really, it was more of a, the, the narrative was more of an afterthought. Whereas uh, Ghost Entanglement, also maybe even American Babylon too, because that was kind of, I kind of felt the narrative too. Because that was actually structured to be like a glam rock record. 
believe it or not. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, oh, yeah. Interesting. yeah. What, what what do you mean by that? Because so American Babylon is this apocalyptic, you know, this like a concept record. Basically, it's like okay, we're kind of in end times. You know, we're facing imminent destruction, and it's like for some reason I kind of just equated that to like the Sunset Strip '80s. So amazing, yeah, the end of an era for sure. Debauchery, just complete Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's where I was like, okay, American Babylon starts off with the, with the radio hit. You have the uh, you have some of the deep cuts in there. You have the cover song, henceforth the drift, the drift cover, and mm-hmm. then you have the power ballad, which ends the album. Right, the Casey Anthony. Yeah. The Casey Anthony thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's incredible. That's yeah. great. So definitely I have never talked yeah. about this with you, so this yeah. is absolutely new to me, and I'm even more excited. And when you were in town last time, we did take you to the Rainbow. Tara and I took you to the full-on oh, yeah. full epicenter of mm-hmm. that Wait, era. Exactly. But did you guys have a Viper Room vigil? We, we did, uh, did we go? We, 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 we didn't go. We were across the street. That's yeah. right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, we, I think we, we, we peeked over. Yeah, we, we, peaked we over. gave it a salute. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Tara, yeah. we've been there. I'm sure you've been yeah, there, uh, but you know, it's, it is officially closed now. I'm pretty sure. I think so. It's going to be yeah. a parking lot. I'm pretty sure. Um, isn't unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, well, and it's so. It, last night, Mike and I were wa- listening to "Poison Butterfly" came day after autumn day. Yes, and we were listening to it while watching images of ancient Roman like frescoes and art. Mm-hmm. And somehow that was so fitting to think about crumbling societies, to think about, you know, the mysteries of times past, the things that we'll never know, the things that were. Well, it was, yeah, it was great because we, a lot of times what we do, we do is we, we put something on the screen on mute yes. and then we had poison butterfly on, and then we had the, the booklet uh, we that real like the zine, you know, yes. that came with it. So Gorgeous. we were trying to surround ourselves with, Images on a screen, the images in the booklet, mm-hmm. and then the sounds just really overwhelm ourselves with this record because I, I, this was definitely because this came out. Uh, I want to say it came out in 2020. Yes. yes, and I remember all of us just being it's such so a bitter sweetness to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it. And then again, gearing up for this episode, I mean, I remember when it came out, reading the the notes, but then reading it again, being like, "Oh wow, this stuff was actually." Oh, the the main chunk of this was recorded a, a good amount of time before it mm-hmm. actually came out. Mm-hmm. So you recorded, or you said you said around the time of t- standstill. What made you go back to this material, and was it always in your mind that you're going to go back to this material at some point and flesh it out? No, I, I knew it was going to be a, a separate thing um, because I was actually working on Poison Butterfly before Standstill. So I was just basically like trying to keep them as separate as possible because there was a different atmosphere mm-hmm. to both records. I mean, if you open up the booklet to Poison Butterfly, that's exactly the atmosphere that I was kind of uh, going for. Perfect. On that. Yes. So, so that's why I purposely kind of had them separate. And Poison Butterfly, even though I would say the vast majority of it was done around the time of Standstill, there were three, three or four songs that were done actually at way after the fact. So that's why it, it did take so long. That's why it was 2022. I think there was like the opening track and I think two on side B or the final track as well too. They were done mm. like after the fact. But, yeah. Absolute incredible one. One that if anyone hasn't gotten around to hearing it, absolutely make a point to, but it is getting reissued at some point. Is that correct? 
sometime soon, I think, uh, right in time for the autumn. Will the extra tape be a part of that reissue, or is it going to be just the Poison Butterfly stuff and... There'll be some surprises in there. Oh, some surprises. There'll be some surprises. You know what? Can't (laughs) wait. We will leave it at that. Now, Industrial Illuminato has been one leading up to you coming out here that, you know how it goes, a lot of our friends have tons of albums. Sometimes there's ones that you haven't pulled out for a minute. That was one that we had not pulled out for a minute. It had been a little while. Brought me right back. My God, mm-hmm. man, that is just what a record. So what was the what was the process of that one? Where were you at mentally with that one? What were what were you trying to get out with that record? Because man, that really has re blown us away. That one. Um, so um, I changed studios for that one. Every so often, I'll change positions of the house where I actually have the studio located. Well, now I can't because I'm in a different house. I'm kind of centralized. But back then, I was—I had the ability. I can go, okay, facing north, facing west, east, whatever. Mm-hmm. After American Babylon, I was not going to make a part two. So basically, I was going to do everything I could to make sure that it was going to sound completely different. So I moved the entire studio downstairs to a moldy basement. Uh, no windows. Um, and I mean, it was mold. Like I'm, I'm yeah. not probably. I'm, yeah, something crap, happened. Yeah. Something, yeah, yeah, something yeah, very yeah, bad yeah, is going to happen. Thing, yeah, fuzzy lungs now. Yeah, and, and then on top of it, it was like I was like smoking a pack and a half a day, just you know for what? Yeah, I mean, that, it was kind of the whole like inspiration, I guess. So it's like, oh, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah, yeah. caffeine and nicotine. Nicotine gets those creative juices. <laughs> exactly, that's what so. It's been proven. Ugh. So yeah, it was <laughs> like so for about a year straight. And that's kind of where Industrial Illuminato came from. So that's why it's got that really just underproduced. Eh, that's not the right word. Maybe. Um, I'll say it feels very. Subterranean maybe. It feels very subterranean. Mm-hmm. It feels very in the moment too. It, mm-hmm. it does feel like it really flowed out of you. Yeah, that one, that one actually did take a lot of work. So the album itself is 45 minutes long, but there's still unreleased outtakes. So it's like over an hour. And I just, oh, wow. That mm-hmm. didn't make the cut. I'm sure at some point, you know. Well, the archives would be unfolded, but yeah. That actually did strike me because it is 45 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And Lusuria, so much Lusuria is expansive, double LP. Yes. Yeah, not really a short, uh, right? short release yeah. guy. But, but it is kind of nice to have the 45 minute mm-hmm. album, right? It, like you, and then you could just hit play again, you mm-hmm. know? Like, mm-hmm. but were you, did did you intend to just make a? I'm going to make a single LP, mm-hmm. a 45 minute CD, like. I'm not going to do the expansive thing. I'm going to focus this right right away. We knew it was going to be uh, when when Dominic and I spoke. We knew right away it was going to be a single album, 40 45 minutes tops. That's it. Purposely wrote more material than I needed and just picked the best stuff and just kind of shaped an album out of the best material. Now you say you wrote material. What is the process of Lasuria? Do you record every single thing you do, or do you? set things up, get an idea, get a sketch, and then record? How? What is the actual process? Depends on depends on the mood I'm in that day. Sometimes it'll be, I'll just be just jamming on gear and I'll come up with the, the Eureka moment and I'll just build on that. Sometimes I'll listen to, uh, oh, I don't know, an Omay record and I'll get some sort of inspiration and try mm-hmm. to like, try to imitate that. You know, there's, there's, that comes up from time to time too. Like some of the more composed pieces, do you write them out before recording or do you have do you hit record no matter what so that you have it yeah record no matter what yeah because yeah. oh yeah. my god lost so much stuff oh, yeah, yeah as a yeah. result i mean yeah. 
Oh, I'll remember that. Do you ever yeah, write yeah. things down, like like write write out your music? Not in a musical theory sense, but the one and only time I did that was actually for Industrial Illuminato, where I actually oh, yeah? took a massive notepad and because it was just so much material, it was like just writing every mm-hmm. every preset, every yeah. sound, every source, every even like the pedal percentages, like what the settings were, every little nook and cranny was written down on this like notepad. It was all filled up by the That's time awesome. the record was finished. You but, don't take yeah. pictures and then lose them? No. Uh, <laughs> I don't, no. I don't think, <laughs> <laughs> See, he's so precise. It's great. This is actually works. It's smart. It really is. Wisdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What about prepping for shows? Are you a notes guy for show prepping or? I'm sorry? Or do, you, do you make notes for when prepping for a live show? Oh, no, not at all. No? No. Wow. no it's, um, do you rehearse a lot? For live shows or pretty pretty practiced by I now? I used to. I used to. Now I'll give myself, what, week and a half, two weeks of rehearsal time. But there, there used to be time. Like, even, like, I remember uh, the uh, the Burning Flesh Festival because that was the first time using, like, the dry ice. That was that was a good month, two months worth of rehearsing. Okay. Because, wow. you know, I, I just, you know, something like that, you know, you don't want it to just come off looking really bad and just either looking or just sounding like garbage. So just, Right. <laughs> Rehearse with it as much as possible. So yeah, there was multiple trips to the ice cream shop. And just, <laughs> yeah, just getting multi, multiple multiple places of dry ice. What's your on a flavor? couple pounds while chocolate. practicing the set. Chocolate? <laughs> chocolate. Yeah, yeah. Really? Chocolate, just plain chocolate. No just chunk. Pl- well, I mean anything chocolate, you know, chip, you know, dark chocolate. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. If it's got <laughs> chocolate, I'll take it. I feel that makes sense. Lusuria, like gelato, yeah. Italy. Well, well, and Lusuria is lust. Well, of course right. it is, but that's what I was gonna ask. So obviously Decadence. there's a big uh theme of Italy, the uh, Italian language mm-hmm. that runs through Lusuria. Where does that come from for you? So the name Lusuria, not gonna lie, came from a Joe D'Amato film. The fantastic in which one? Yeah, Lasuria. Yeah. But are you know what I mean? With, there's a movie there's, called Lasuria. Yeah, 1986. It was Wait, a, what? I don't it, know this. It film. was a softcore porn slash really bizarre surreal. It wasn't horror, but if you watch it, you good luck trying to find one with subtitles. That's like that's number one. We're big Joe D'Amato fans yes, here, fans. and I am. I didn't. I did not know that this movie existed. Mm-hmm. That was. Uh, that was the. Mm, that was the main reason why it was named Lucerne. Wow. So, All right, Severin, uh, let's get on it. We need that Blu-ray. How, Somebody. How big of a, uh, how much importance do movies play in your sort of reference and musical language? They used to play a, uh, a much bigger role. Now it's more personal. Right. Yeah. yeah. But but the, but in the early days, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's the sure. perfume of the lady in black. Exactly. Tape, right. Mm-hmm. So definitely exactly. That. You know, the, the Giallo thing. I mean, even the samples, even that track in particular, that's like the soundtrack just butchered completely, mm-hmm. just tape loops and just cut up, repasted. And but it's just in you. You know, it's yeah. just like it just it's part of your language, but it's not. You don't, you don't have, it doesn't have to be so direct. Right. You like it, like maybe in there, but I think it's anyone who evolves within their own language that they're creating in their project. Sometimes it starts one way and then it goes another way, but it's always in there. What was the Italian, you know, scene something that was big for you as well? Like Slaughter, Marco, of MB, of was that, was that a big part of your path into? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All the Europa. I mean, Ghost Entanglement, I'm not going to lie, is an homage to Slaughter. I yeah. Mean, I yeah. mean, Lusuri mm-hmm. always will be to some degree, but right. that one, you know, it's, yeah, definitely the Italian scene for sure. Drift, I mean, I I should actually mention Drift before because when I mentioned uh, oh, Omega yeah. and Mare Try, mm-hmm. and because Drift was a huge one. 
Oh yeah, yeah, incredible project. And yeah, there is just something about that Italian sound that when you're in that zone, it's hard to get out of it. Yeah, I mean, going back to Joe D'Amato, he actually said something in an interview where he's like, a lot of his theory was make the most on such a shoestring budget. And that's how he was able to make three movies out of a Caribbean vacation that he happened to be on. I love it. And that's yeah. how I feel the Italian industrial scene was kind of like that too. It was like just <laughs> making the most of what you possibly had. I think that's a great way to operate. And, and something I know we all love about different directors and movies before recording, talking about Jess Franco, that's just that idea of like, oh, I have access to this hotel for X amount of days. So I'm going to write a movie literally based in here and we're gonna we're gonna film it in it three would be days. a shame to waste it. yeah mm -hmm. yeah but i think yeah. we, a lot of us operate in that way exactly. just like you're saying with these deadlines or with this inspiration that you have and all right i have this inspiration by the end of the week i'm having a tape or an album or a cd or whatever because that's it, we can't lose it Mm -hmm. and it's momentum i mean yeah. you know, when, when you have momentum you have to keep up with it it's it's when you stop doing things completely that's when it becomes hard so that's once it. you keep it going it's easier and easier and easier and just building upon things it's that's great exactly it mm -hmm. that's 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 exactly it so we were talking about deadlines and talking about working within parameters and something i want to talk about is that you and i have had some collaborative works in the past few years mm. and along with dom and i really enjoyed the way we worked together and it, it just kind of what we were just discussing this idea of a lot of times the idea will be there right i mean generally Dom will have the large idea. I will then provide the, the source or the, the the unfinished crude stuff that I can then send to you and then you can shape it. And then eventually Dom can be the final sort of proofreader and right. editor. I really enjoy the way we work together like that. How do you how do you approach working in our collaborative way? You know, Van Gogh Torments and then coming out now, the communion that was just announced this week. Yeah, there were two very different ways of operating. Van Gogh Torments, that one, going back to the whole idea of narrative, that's the one where I was kind of like trying to make like a sound storybook. And that's kind of why it's like, especially with like the opening tracks where you kind of have like, you know, Van Gogh walking up the stairs and you hear the door creaking. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that's kind of how I was operating on, on for that one. And that's kind of where my mindset was on with this. I think with this, uh, with the, the communion that's about to come out, I think that was a little more conventional. That one where I was actually going to locales to get the sources. Uh, like I was, I was visiting insane asylums and getting the sound, um, getting the field recordings out of there. So yeah, it was different. Yeah. Two different approaches on, on, on the both releases. I like the idea of everyone having their roles and what they're good at. And then, and going with that as opposed to trying to force yeah, another thing. Strengths. I am not going to be the detail oriented person that can take that and, and mold it. I can do the, the raw crude stuff, no problem mm -hmm. and send it, and send it to you, which then can do that. Do you enjoy taking other people's material and and shaping and molding? Is that something that? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, definitely. I mean, uh, 
I mean, even prior to, to us working together, I've definitely done it before you know, with just some of the other hospital artists too, just kind of on some of the collaborations, uh, like the one with, with Albert, for example. Oh yeah. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, no, I've definitely worked with other people's stuff and just, I guess, mold it. Are you yeah. generally the, the, I, for as we just keep using the word, are you generally the molder or do you ever provide the raw material? Are you mostly the, you get the raw material guy? From time to time, yeah, there's sometimes I'll actually do get the raw stuff. More often than not, usually it's just like the the, the molding end of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. But yeah, there, there were times I actually did the raw the raw end of things. But I think just just going with going with the strengths and going with that is is what makes a great collaboration. And then mm. having- I was blown away when Mike played the communion once it was mixed yeah. together together. It was, it was fantastic. Like, yeah, that turned out really, really such, eerie. Like the, you guys hit the nail on the head with the vibe for that, with the atmosphere, with the, the strangeness, with the, you know, fear, isolation, confusion, all of that, the murkiness of that situation. So I thought it was great. When I enjoy operating in the, the theme and idea and atmosphere can just get, and then I can just go into it. You know, this is the book communion and, and this is the, this is what we're going with. And then just submerging myself in that world. And then, you know, that's, I think the best thing to do. And I, I feel that you operate that way as well. Where it's like, if this is going to be what we're doing, then I'm going to go all in and just get into that world. Like you said, you are, you go to locations a lot and, and get field recordings from there and bring that back into the recording to just create this atmosphere that, you know, it's there and whether or not the listener knows that's what you did they subconsciously know because this is what's coming across. It's mm-hmm. faith and translation. And I think, yeah, when we were working on this communion, we were actually listening to this audiobook a lot just for the inspiration. Mm-hmm. It, it, is. Definitely, it definitely shows in the, in the music because it really is eerie, oh, off-putting stuff. Absolutely. It's it really, really... Uh, if anyone has not read the book Communion, I mean, come on. It is absolutely... It bet holds up beyond holds up better than ever nowadays. And it is, I mean, I, yeah, it was, def- I've, I've actually had some issues in the middle of the night sleeping recently. It was, it was working on the, the tape and, and getting into that atmosphere and rereading things. I have had some, some tough uh, middle of the night moments that uh, I can have, attest to this. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes you get so deep that you end up getting a little, uh, a little too deep, but I think there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I think that's how we have to operate. The book in question, Communion by Whitley Stryber. There you go. Yes, absolutely. For Sorry. Anyone who's thank, you, thank you, Gray. Wondering for the direct reference. Yeah. Thank you, Gray. Yes. But something else that's fairly new is another one of your endeavors, which is Rogue State University. How did that come about? Where was the idea to start this project and uh, what's the inspiration behind it? And, and what's the inspiration behind its structure? There were two specific things that actually inspired Rogue State. One was seeing uh, Vetrophonia, Russian project. There was a DVD that they released where it was had live footage. Did he do a split with MSBR or collaboration? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was uh, this was a side collaborative project with uh, Alexander Frontov from uh, Lini Jamas. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. So this DV, uh, DVD had, I think, like two or three of their live performances where 
on stage was just all anti-instruments. Like they were taking like an old, like the, uh, like the old sewing wheel. I like moving that around, hearing the clack and like the entire stage was just basically anti-instruments. So that was just like complete game changer. Like, wow. All right. So I kind of want to do something like this, but I don't know how to go about it. Part two was actually, uh, was actually the fest at uh, knockdown center. After that, between black leather, Jesus set, mm. Minecraft, Mersbau, basically that entire day. Yeah. Basically it was like, no, this is, I'm full on into noise from here on in. And yeah. basically using Vetrophonia as, as kind of like a cue taking anti-instruments. So the first experiment was just taking a sprinkler, like one of those, like those spit sprinkler things, miking it up and just making an entire track out of that. And, um, Mix that with the haters, um, some like new black haters in there as well, too. Um, I remember where the black humor started to come from that, though. The, the Vetrophonia guys had this uh, Leningrad school of industrial, which I didn't know what that meant at all. I kind of was like, got a kick out of it. It was like, imagine that there's an actual school for industrial mm-hmm. music. <laughs> so I would find out later on uh, from friends of mine that actually kind of knew that scene. It was like, no, Leningrad School of Industrial is kind of like a tag, like true Norwegian black metal. It's like, it's kind of like that. It, there's not a literal like scene or movement. It's just, but I kind of like took it at fa- as face value and like, all right, let's make up university under Rogue State University and just make this completely as outrageous and, and as bad shit as possible. And, um, Meanwhile, just keeping this uh, completely anti, anti-instrument anti the entire way, just destroying everything that you can, destroying instruments. And if it's not an instrument, make an instrument out of it. Take a Ford F-150, you know, work with the engine, run over uh, record players with that Ford F-150. <laughs> you know I mean? the, and, and the part, a big part of it is the physical mail that, that you send out and, mm-hmm. and different different things that aren't, registered anywhere except if you are if you applied basically to for the university and which is such an exciting thing and bringing back that old school feel you in in setting out homework assignments and and all that and and it's incredible and i know we all three have our homework assignments i know tara and i need to get on ours uh we do need to get on our homework assignment (laughs) i was i wasn't gonna mention it rogue state homework is the fastest i've done homework in my entire life i agree gray does it instantly he's so good with his homework it's fantastic but just i i just have to assume just that excitement of mail letters sending out these the physical objects just harkens back to your early days of course yeah. of course and it's kind of weird because i didn't think that here in 20 22 23 i'm actually writing snail mail letters like i was in the 90s i thought those days were long gone and over so it's kind of kind of weird to just get into that mindset again but it's also cool at the same time it's just yeah i think people are starting to take some of that back because of where we're at and it's just like just rejecting that and going back to putting a stamp on an envelope. And Those things only disappear if we let them, right? Yeah. If we, mm-hmm. and, so we get used to the convenience and sort of culturally no one else is doing it. And so it falls by the wayside. But yeah. I like that I get letters from you. I like that I get, oh, we talk about this postcards from Scott Kinberg. Yeah. I like that yeah. I get a package from Eric Lundy, that kind of stuff where you're just like, what is this? This yeah. is just a thing. And Hopefully anyone who's listening to this has, has seen or gotten their hands on a Rogue State University application. But what does the alumni look like now? And and how do you uh, handle the 
more tedious end of managing that stuff. Are you speaking of the dean now? Yeah. yeah <laughs> yes. oh, okay. Sorry. Managing yeah. dean for so us. I think alumni. I think we're looking at about a hundred students right now. That's, that's kind of what the last count was exactly. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a secretary, so it's just uh, it's all on me. <laughs> man, least, it'd be great if you did, because man, I should. Who knows should, what would happen? You I, know, I, I get that secretary in, call her into the office. Oh, Lordy. <laughs> yeah. Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Could be a release on initiation services. Yeah, yeah, so right, right. Right. yeah absolutely. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll have some secretary play later. It's okay. 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 Right. Sounds good. Sounds All good. Right. We, we mentioned the homework a little bit, but uh, we, are we allowed to talk yeah, about the of homework? Course, of course. Yeah. All right. Well, sometimes there's some fairly strict instructions. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So this was that that almost was like kind of a bit of a, a running a running theme too, because the original assignment was uh, was a Soviet Christmas card that was basically yeah. signed by. Every '80s villain you could think of, from Saddam Hussein to well, even I mean, was exactly Gorbachev, right? Gorbachev, Reagan. It came wrapped with a tape where basically the student was supposed to take the tape, loop it up, decipher it, send it back, and then get graded on it. So now, the second assignment when you submitted that, you got the shoe, the, the concrete shoe. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. We we we, we, opened, we opened the door to two giant packages because Tara and I are both are both students separately. So mm -hmm. so that's but you know we both get everything yes. and open it up and yes, it was a shoe filled with concrete. Right. So basically, the student needs to break the shoe, find the tape, make their own noise track. How they go about it is entirely up to them, um, and then send the track back. For, for submission what i'm going to do with it yet i haven't really decided yet but it's gonna it's gonna coincide with the third assignment somehow i just I well we're amazing. gonna videotape our yeah homework. yeah yeah i've already uh, videotaped yes, my discussion yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so we'll have to put them together uh, have you been getting submissions back already i've gotten one or two and also it has gotten back to me that people are keeping the shoe intact for collecting purposes whoever does this flunks out of rsu i got my hammer out <laughs> that day did yeah. not understand and the assignment yeah it, it's such a cool thing but also when i opened it i was like this is one of the craziest i've been mailed a lot of crazy stuff this is one of the craziest <laughs> yes, things definitely i've ever been mailed is a shoe filled with concrete yeah a dress shoe filled with concrete and, a tape. and with a tape in it as well yes yeah. i mean it's, it kind of harkens back to uh to, to smell and quim which i know is a big for you yeah, we did a seven inch episode of uh, Oslo and quim together and i know that was a huge one for you so that, I mean, that's, that's also a rogue state inspirationist uh, as well, too. I mean, just the fish between the tapes and yeah. So, yeah. You'll never forget the fish. I mean, just all, could ever just, forget the truly, fish. The, truly the greatest. And especially being at the live show, nearly being hit by the fish, <laughs> <laughs> getting the fish juice wind upon my face. And there's a, uh, a recent, uh, split tape with meat locker that mm -hmm. came out, but I'm pretty sure, uh, maybe out of luck at this point. I think it may be gone. I'm not, I think it is. Yeah. yeah, I'm not yeah sure. But you know, it, Obviously, keeping up on Rogue State is something that the three of us are very much. Uh, we, we there's no there's no missing it. It's 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 a project that we've all been very excited about since its inception, mm -hmm. and you know, no, it has not faded in any way. I'm excited about the physicality of the yeah. things that are sent, and I'm also excited about the 
the continuous concepts because so many times like the concepts don't keep unfolding and aren't continuous. Yeah. And, and I think it's even in terms of just having a project where you can think about it in your mind and spend time thinking about it. That's so exciting. Yeah, to me. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like a one and done. You're just like, Oh, you know, you can chuckle to yourself and you can tell jokes with each other about things you do at the university, much like Mike thinking about what Dean Frost would do with, with the secretary, secretary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, things of this nature, the, the, the sports that would be involved at oh, yeah. Rhodes, Rogue state university, what the parking situation is. Yeah. Do you things have a parking of that nature. pass? Well, parking do you need pass, one? Yeah. Do you, well, or if you park there is your vehicle immediately destroyed. Exactly. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. Used you as an at, instrument. Exactly. So if the car shows up that might get demolished. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Everything That's is true. fair game at Rhodes state have university. You <laughs> considered doing Rogue state live. It's going to happen. Yeah. I just don't know when. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's no rush. I mean, it's yeah. just whatever it needs to happen, it'll happen. Yeah, the, the thing, the thing I'm worried about it is something like that. There's just too much potential for it to just look like just goofy and cornball. So, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it, you're gonna have to take some time and really figure yeah. out how mm -hmm. to do it. And it's just gotta be the right exactly. show, the right everything. There's exactly. No, there's no rush, and there's no yeah. reason to just do it. You got yeah. your own homework. The the Fedophonia yes. performances. That's, that's yeah. true. Actually, that's true. I'll have to have a. I'll have to have collaborators on there too. Can they make it? A remote performance in front of like a bell tower. Yeah. Can it be yeah. on a quad? Yeah. 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 Like uh, cordless contact mics on frisbees. I'm into. Oh wow! There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hacky sacks. A bunch of a bunch of beer cans to crush. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. Pool. That's that's going to be coming. The beer, the beer theme is coming. There's, oh good. Uh, well, we already did. We're kind of working on the sports thing. Uh, we I, did, I, the, yeah, there's there's definitely there's been some there's some documentation or maybe I've just seen some documentation. Yeah, there's, so. there's yeah, plenty yeah. of photos. Yeah, 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 yeah. We did the boss distortion connected to a football. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So a uh, mutual friend of ours yes. that we've spoken on before. He's a, he's a big he's a big dude. Yeah. So, so basically. Um, Asked him to kick this football with the boss pedal on it. So he kicked it, made the field goal. He won the game for noise that day. Yes. <laughs> yes. Field yes. What do you say when they get a field? You don't say touchdown. You it's, say field sport. He won the, he won the game for noise that day. It's I good. love it. That is amazing. <laughs> and in a way, I think that's I think that's the perfect way to bring this home because we are winning for noise. We're winning for ambient because we're going to get to see Lasuria play tomorrow. It'll already have happened. Once this comes out, it'll have been in our memory. Nothing but a fond memory. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. But also, hey, hey, we're going to get to see Cleanse tomorrow too. First oh. Cleanse show in a long time Whoops, yeah. with a new tape that just came out. So very excited about the future of Cleanse and the, the current and future of Cleanse. So this is going to be yeah. this is an exciting show. So I'm excited. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And we're always excited. Just we got to, Jim here because yeah, of this. I'm so, in so person, excited. I can't which wait. is always good. So I think in fitting fashion, we're gonna go have some beverages and continue talking, uh, and then see each other tomorrow and have some more beverages and watch <laughs> each other play. Well, I'm just gonna watch everyone play. Tara and I are just gonna. Watch I'm just gonna play. watch. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. I just get to enjoy a night. Well. Jim, it's always awesome to hang and have you on, of course. 
No, thanks. It's always great to be Heck here. Heck yeah. yeah. And, and uh, we should say the the LP version of Scarlet Locust is available to, I, I, I don't believe they're physically in hand yet, but still can just get, get you, secure your copy, but should be pretty soon, right? I think any day now. Any day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely look forward to that and 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 secure your copy if you haven't yet. And uh some more stuff coming soon. And of course, we will be telling you all about it because the Surya in a noise extra recent listening is a pretty guaranteed thing yep. to happen <laughs> at any given week. So thank you, Jim. Oh, thank you. All right, man. Hell yeah. You have been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 20 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to Noise.